once again, my friends, to the Global Gale podcast. My name is Philip O'Connor, coming to you once again from, not from my home in Sweden, but from the other side of that venerable Scandinavian country. I am usually coming to you from somewhere around Stockholm. This week or this evening, I am over in Gothenburg on the west coast of Sweden. And I'm over here to do a little bit of work and had an awful lot of fun and games getting here, so I'll tell you about all that in a second. But just to remind you that you are now listening to the podcast for the 70 million Irish people around the world. It doesn't matter to me whether you were born on the island of Ireland, uh, whether you have some family connection to the island of Ireland, or if you just love the Irish people and the Irish crack and the Irish culture and you're interested in the subject we're talking to or we're talking about here today, you are all more than welcome. And the subject that we're talking about here today will be the subject of hurling and camogie in East Africa. Lads, it never ceases to amaze me what can be done in Gaelic games and with Gaelic games. But the fascinating story that you're about to hear is one with a little bit of a difference, right? Um, Gaelic games usually tend to be Irish people abroad bringing their hurls and bringing their size 5 and size 4 O'Neill's balls and then trying to introduce it to a new country. I know, I literally wrote a book about it. Uh, The book is called A Parish Far From Home. Uh, it was published by Gil and Macmillan many years ago, now called Gil Books. Uh, but you'll actually find it as an audio book on SoundCloud as well, if you're looking to it. Hit me up on social media and I'll send you the link to it. It's all there for free, so it's well worth a listen to. Uh, Gil Books were very kind and they allowed me to put it out there as an audio book during COVID, which was very generous of them. But anyway, um, I started to see uh, that the Stockholm Gales Camogues uh, were interacting with a, uh, an account on Facebook, no, not on Facebook, on Instagram, for the Equator Gales uh, hurling and the uh, Gaelic football and Camogie club. I was going, what on earth is this? The Equator. Uh, right, we better have a quick look at this and see what's happening. So I got in touch with the club and they told me this amazing story. Now, as I mentioned, it's often Irish people setting up these things. But in Uganda, particularly with hurling, it's Ugandan people coaching Ugandan kids and teaching them how to hurl. Lads, the minute they told me that, I was going, right, I, this is a story that I absolutely have to have to bring to you. Before I do that, let me remind you, my friends, that this is indeed a community-supported podcast. It only exists because you do, and it exists because of your generosity and support. So if you can, go to patreon.com forward slash man in Stockholm and throw in a fiver a month if you can. It's a good time to do it because the Swedish crown is dying on its backside and the euro is very, very popular over here altogether. So if you can throw in a fiver a month, it will go a long way to help me keep producing these podcasts for you and for the 70 million Irish around the world. The other thing that you can do for me is you can share the podcast, right? Uh, I've been talking to a lot of people now in recent weeks about trying to build this audience and trying to reach as many people as possible. Um, I started the podcast with the premise that there's no such thing as an ordinary Irish person abroad, right? So there are some episodes where you'll hear from celebrities or or well-known people that you might someday see on the Late Late Show or that. But what I really want to do is bring you stories like the one that you're about to hear from Daniel Reed and from uh, the GEA in Uganda, right? And in order to be able to do that, I need your support and I need a bigger audience. So when you get this now, if you're involved in, in GEA in Africa or in sport in Africa, or if you're in Oman where Daniel spends a lot of his time as well, share this around your community here. And you know what? Get in touch because we always tend to pick up a few new listeners from each place when somebody from that place turns up, right? So if you're in... 
Abu Dhabi and you're doing something over there or if you know something about getting a visa for Australia or that kind of thing or if you're working with those kinds of things get in touch with me and we'll bring you on to tell the story to help the Irish communities around the world to find their way around the world and uh, that always helps to build the audience so please do share it on Instagram is a good one share it on Facebook is a great one uh, share it on Twitter if you can you'll find me there as well at Philip O'Connor and at Philip Ablana on Instagram as well so if you can share it that would be absolutely brilliant listen that's enough about all that kind of crack we're talking about community 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 and here as I say is one of the best stories of community that I've absolutely ever heard and again you know on the surface you think that this is this is a good story it's it's young people abroad and they're playing Gaelic football and her lads it's so much more than this so here he is, Daniel Reed, telling the story of how the Equator Gales GAA club was found and how now it has turned into Ugandans coaching Ugandans in the great Gaelic games of Gaelic football, hurling and camogie. Take it away there, Dan. It's such a big story, Dan, that I don't even know where to get into it. But maybe we might start with your own personal story about how you came to be in Uganda. And we'll get onto the subject of Uganda GAA very shortly. What are you doing over there, my friend? Well, funny story is I am currently not in Uganda. Currently, I live in the Middle East, um, but I travel over and back to Uganda and to Ireland. So I've been here in Oman for 13 years. Uh, Previous to that, I was in Uganda for two. And I'm in Uganda probably between eight to 12 weeks a year, um, working on different projects that I work within outside of the GAA as well. Um, But yeah, uh, so originally from Kilkenny, um, moved to Uganda for the first time when I was 21 as part of a educational program from the University of Limerick. And I've been going back over and back for the last 15 years. You mentioned two words there that will explain an awful lot about the growth of hurling in East Africa, right? And those two words were Kilkenny and Limerick. Can you explain a little bit about your own background? I'm, I'm assuming with that background that you're a bit of a hurler yourself, yeah? Uh, well, I try. I try. <laughs> like it's funny, I haven't, I, haven't, <laughs> I haven't actually played a competitive hurling match at home since I was 21, when I went to Uganda first. Um, but I played a lot growing up, played at the University of Limerick, played underage at a couple of different levels for Kilkenny, uh, played football for Kilkenny. So the GA would be a huge part. And that's why for, for us at uh, Equator Gales, it's bringing the parish to the Pearl of Africa. So the idea of the, the parish mindset where everything is built around communication, involvement, getting people involved not only sport but education and um there's a there's a there's a group it's actually funny today is the first fish irish dancing fish in uganda with over with three schools competing so we have there's there's three irish dancing schools as well that have kicked off in uganda in the last in the last two years Take me back to when you were 21, right? You go over there, you're coming fresh out of the University of Limerick. Uh, I'm, do, do you work in education? You do, or is that where you started yeah, yeah. working? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I, I'm an economics uh, and business teacher here in, in Oman. Yeah. 
So, so you arrive over there, and of course, you know, the love of hurling, I'm sure you had to come on with you and maybe a slitter in the bottom of the bag and that kind of thing. Does Was there any GAA there when you arrived, when you rocked up there at all? Was there anybody playing any sort of games whatsoever? No, no. Like, the the, the GAA has, has only really become a thing in, in Uganda in the last three years. Um, and it has gotten an awful lot of coverage in the last two years with Uganda GAA, which is a community-based organization in Wakiso, which is just outside the capital city. There's a handball club in the north of Uganda. Um, and now there's Equator Gales, which is based in three schools, two in Entebbe and one in Kampala. Um, and there's there's very different focuses on the, the different schools. So the school in, in Kampala is in the hands of hope which basically takes children out of slum areas, gives them an education, and now hurling, football, and camogie have become an integral part of their their outreach initiative as well as their extracurricular activities. These are kids who would grow up watching Kylian Mbappe. They would grow up watching, you know, the great African footballers. They, you know, Arsenal's a big thing there. Manchester United, Liverpool, Mohamed Salah being a North African is a big thing. How easy is it to put a hurl in their hand and get them to play camogie or hurling then? Well, the first thing is to try to, you know, tell them it's not a weapon. Um, I don't know about that. (laughs) (laughs) And secondly, what it is, is that, they're so, they love the idea of learning something new. And what makes it so wonderful is that it's not Irish people doing this. It's Ugandans coaching Ugandans to play hurling. So from watching YouTube clips to watching, you know, the greats of, of my generation and past generations, and now hopefully us creating a, a generation of hurlers, footballers, camogie players, handballers that, you know, use the, the sport that we grew up with and that we love to now using it as a method of development and a method of getting them out of the hardship that they live in their their in their personal lives and them having something to do that gives them not only hope, but gives them access. It gives them all of the things that you know, that would be integral within any any community or within any, you know, parish that we like that we would have grown up in, that we would have seen, that we would have seen the parish hall, the, the GAA pitch and how important that was to, to to Irish people. But now it's something that's strange is that the village structure in Uganda is becoming like that because of, you know, children going down to the to to I won't even call it a hurling pitch, but just at the school grounds and you see kids pulling on Bally Gunner jerseys and Dublin jerseys and Westmead jerseys and jerseys from all over Ireland that obviously have been very kindly donated by the Irish people over the last two years. And really, it doesn't it doesn't work unless you have those people who go out of their way and, you know, are selfless to, to allow what we're doing to happen. Even in our own part of the world, you see great riches alongside great poverty. And I'm sure you've witnessed the same thing in the Middle East. Um, how is Uganda at the moment in terms of uh, that? How is how is society doing there? When you go to Kampala or somewhere like that, is it a modern city? Do they have the skyscrapers, what was once described to me as the architectural arms race of, of the Middle East? Is that going on there? You know, because the last thing I want to do is give people the impression that, you know, this is just like a picture off the throw box, except now they're holding a hurl kind of thing. No, 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 no. So 
I would say from the schools that we're working with, it's it's a pathway out of poverty and it's a pathway out of, you know, have going back to the, the negativity on a, on a daily basis, at least when they have education and they have sports, Gaelic games, dancing, that they have this positive outlook on life. But at the same time, like Kampala has, you know, like any other developing city, it has its areas where you have it there at the embassies, you have shopping malls, you have private schools, you have international schools. But then outside of that, you have the happiest people in the world, but living in the, in the worst conditions in the world. You have a society that is built on agriculture. You have all of these things, just like, like just like in Ireland. What I would say is that the Kampala itself is in certain areas is developed, but it, society is like Ireland in the 40s and 50s, where everybody had food on the table coming from their their own gardens. They had the, they have their own cow. They milk it. You know, they slaughter a couple of chickens. You know, it's that kind of thing. It's like it, it's 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 two different worlds. Kampala in the in the center is its own little bubble where you have all of the aid agencies and that have set up. So you have huge wealth, you have five star hotels, you have all of that. But then you draw a circle around that and then you move outside to to your slum areas where these would have been people from rural Uganda who would have sold their land, you know, in the hope of pastures new and green. But then they realize it's so expensive. So then they can't go back to the village because they've sold their land. Life in the in the capital is too expensive, and now they're they they've set themselves up in these townships, for the lack of a better word. And these are the areas that are struggling the most because they're they're caught between a rock and a hard place when it comes to what they have access to. In terms of education there, because again, it would have been historically for Irish people, we would have understood the missions, the brothers and the nuns and the priests who went to Africa for a certain period of their career, they would have taught down there and then they would have come back and tried to inspire us as young people to go there and do the same thing. Is it the church? Is it the state? Who looks after the education for these young people? Uh, you know, the, the children of the people who sold their land and, and moved to the city and maybe it didn't turn out, the grass didn't turn out to be greener for them. Who Who takes the responsibility for their education? So the whole thing is just a pure paradox. We always think that there's something better, there's something greater, and we always try and we try and strive for that. But if we look at the village, a lot of villages will have, you know, a number of primary schools. They would be, they would be religious founded. Uh, secondary schools religious founded, but then you'll also have the state schools where the, the salaries are paid by the government. But most of the private schools are boarding schools, and they're run. Like the 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 head teacher will often be a priest. The, the the teachers will be paid from the school fees being paid by the children. So there is universal primary education, but a lot of people would prefer their children to go to a school where they would struggle to get the money, but it would be under the values of of the church. Or or in in Uganda, you have a huge presence of Islam as well. So you would have schools that would be directly linked to to the, the local mosque and the imam, etc. So you have a lot of it, a lot of the parish um, mentality is based around what the church would have given or what the church gives. 
what's the structure of the GEA in Uganda now? Because I just I have this vision of you rocking up to Crow Park at Congress and all of a sudden you have all these clubs and you have their votes and a bit like, you know, FIFA and UEFA, what happened to them, you know, that all of a sudden these players are taking over. Is there a lot of clubs there, Dan? Uh, I know that for, for a fact that there's an under-13 league that gets played there amongst a couple of clubs. Is there a lot of clubs? Is there a lot of involvement? And is there any Irish involvement in these things? So the, there's two there's two clubs. Now within those clubs you have different teams. So the the, the Wakiso uh, Uganda GA club, uh, they have a league, and within their CBO, which is a community based organization, they've created a, a, a league within their club. So kind, of, kind of like the mini leagues that an Irish club would have had back home, where all the kids are part of the same club, but they play one against one another every Saturday morning. That kind of setup, like that, yeah, yeah, that kind of thing. Um, so Uganda GA is a community-based organization just outside Kampala. Then there's Equator Gales, which is in Kampala, is in, in Entebbe. And at the end of September, there will be another arm or link from Equator Gales that is setting up in Western uh, Uganda with the support of a family in Kilkenny. It's amazing, you know, to see the footprint of these things or the reach that Gaelic games have. How many players would you reckon that you have across the age groups? Are there senior men's and women's teams or is it mostly school school going kids? I would say it's uh, under 17 and below. Hmm. Um, I would say currently playing Gaelic games across the country. You're looking at probably somewhere between 150 and 200. Uh, children under the age of 17 playing. You've obviously been involved there in Uganda GEA for a long time. Um, how long has it taken to get to this point where there's 150, maybe 200 kids who are interested in playing? Has this been, you know, sort of your life's work just to get to this point? Or has it happened, as you mentioned, over the last three years when there's been a very fast development? Well, the thing is, my my role is is minimal uh, in comparison to the work that you, like Ugandans are doing within the game itself. Mm. So as I said, you have you have Uganda GA, which is the social media presence for the uh, for hurling in Wakiso. So that's one club. Then you have Equator Gales, which came from the success that Uganda GA ha- have had at the St Patrick's Day Festival in Uganda this year. Aidan Fogarty um, w- was out in Uganda, um, and they had a blitz. Um, between the teams that were created within Wakiso Gales. And then two of the schools in Entebbe saw how much fun the children were having, how much, you know, it brought them on leaps and bounds as individuals. And then that was this that was the foundation of Equator Gales. So Equator Gales has has only was only launched last week. Hmm. But the GA or hurling in Uganda has been there for the last couple of years, but it's all been founded and coached by Ugandans. It's only through the Irish community that these clubs are being supported. Um, I find the idea of Ugandans coaching other Ugandans to play hurling fascinating, right? Because these are, in inverted commas, they're our sports. We grew up playing them in a certain way, right? When you look at Ugandans playing hurling, does it look the same to you as the way it did when you were growing up in Kilkenny or when you were studying in Limerick? Or do they bring something different to the game in terms of the way they solve the problem that the game itself creates? What I'd say is that 
if they they have the they have the physical attributes, they have the strength, they have the speed. But obviously, growing up, we would have been carrying a hurley to school, carrying a hurley to mass. You know, the hurley was the hurley was connected at the hip. So it's one of those things. They they don't have that those skill sets. But once Gaelic football kicks off in Uganda, that's when you're going to see a completely different animal altogether. They can jump high, they can run fast, they can they can kick far. That's where you'll actually see the the, the the attributes of Ugandans really coming to the fore. Hurling is more of a skill set. Gaelic football requires technique. It requires, it's a more strategic sport when it comes to the way in which it's played present day. Like you have inter-county teams that are taking the rule book and almost discarding it because now it's a professional game being played by amateurs and a professional environment that's being played by amateurs so you have this you have a huge strategy within Gaelic games now it's not just the ball is being thrown in and off you go and hell for letter for 70 minutes and you have a winner at the end of it it's so strategic it's so um technical it's as i said professional so the ugandans with the hurling will take a little bit longer but what you can see for those who grasp it there, there. Some of the some of the things you see on the training pitch is just you're looking at them going, how are you doing this? And you've been doing it for two months, and then you know you have you know some of the girls, some of the girls have picked up camogie a lot faster than the boys have picked up hurling. That's amazing because, because the girls because girls are you know they mature faster, so they're putting their time into making sure that they can rise the ball, that they can you know, can pass the ball. They're looking at how can I make this thing simpler for myself rather than what boys will do, which is how far can I hit the ball? You know, how hard can I hit it? How hard can I hit your man's shoulder? Whereas the girls are thinking about the intricacies of, okay, ball in my hand is the most important thing. How do I get it there as fast as I can? Whereas the boys, you know, sometimes you think that it it was a scene from Braveheart going on. You know, they're all running. They're all running in one direction, and the ball. And then you know, the ball breaks out, and because uh, in the younger group, in the younger age groups, the girls and the boys will play together. Mm-hmm. But obviously, as the boys get older and the girls get older, the boys get stronger. So then, obviously, we separate them into hurling and into camogie. But the girls are picking it up equally as fast, or if not faster, the skill set mm-hmm. of the games. It's, it's amazing to see because, as I say, it's, all these games are problems of time and space to be solved. And the girls showing this innate intelligence of, okay, getting the ball into my hand and keeping it there and not having to work to get it back, you know, whereas, as you say, the lads are going, oh, Jesus, let me see how far I can hit this kind of thing. <laughs> you, you, you mentioned the growth of football there, Dan, right? What does it do to your soul as a Kilkenny man to see football being relatively easy when compared to hurling and camogie to teach? Because it is the case that, you know, again, I always say that, you know, hurling is an art, but football is for the artisan. So if you can be like Michael Darren McCauley or myself and just a hard worker, you'll, you'll go a certain distance. But it's harder to do that in hurling. Does that upset you in any way? Well, it just, as you said, it's it's an art. It's an art form. And that's why... If you look at the football game versus the hurling game, there's a lot more counties, obviously, Kilkenny not being one of them. But 
there's a lot more counties that play football competitively. And I, I don't mean competitively in the sense of, you know, it's played everywhere, but you have more, you have a greater scope for football. It's like, if you look, if you were to look at the international clubs around the world, the majority of them are getting football clubs, just like the one I'm part of here in Oman. Like we have a, we have a football club here. We don't have a hurling club because there's not enough Irish people here in Oman to play hurling. Whereas with Gaelic football, we have Australians, we have South Africans, we have Omanis themselves. So our football team is full is has seven, eight, nine nationalities. Whereas if you're to have a hurling team, you probably need to have at least over half of it be Irish, but then the other half be at least, you know, English, Scottish, or Welsh who have an Irish parent and they might have grown up with it and they know what it is, or they might have played it at home in Ireland during the summer. But it's a very, very different. It's very different. And the reason why football is something that the Ugandans are very, very good at is the fact that the sports they would have grown up playing would have been would have been soccer, football, uh, netball, basketball. So they have the eye-hand coordination. They understand the flight of the ball. They understand how to catch it, how to pass it. You know, it, they're, they've, they've already have the skill set, but it's just using those skills in a different manner. Yeah. Whereas hurling is, com- is something completely different. Like, you know, there might be lads at home in Ireland, you know, during the winter swinging the handle of a hatchet to try and, you know, strengthen their strike or whatever. So the Ugandans would never have had any kind of background of what Gaelic game, what hurling is. They know what football is, but it's in a different form because of the other sports that they play. They can they can adapt to that. And yet, Dan, there was one night I live in Stockholm in Sweden. Right. And there was one night that I had a bag of hurls in the back of the car. And I happened to be at a football training and I opened the, bo- the the boot of the car to take the, the football kit out. And I, I said, geez, I'll bring the hurls anyway. And I handed them out and said, right, this is how you do this. And I remember a Kurdish lad called Hassoni Faili. And he picked up the ball, he picked up the slitter and he picked up the hurl and he hit it as if he'd been doing it all his life. Right. So I sometimes wonder, are, are we doing people a disservice by saying, ah, oh, like, you know, you need the right passport to play this game because it would appear from your experience in Uganda and maybe to a lesser extent in Oman that people can actually find a way to play these games like the girls were learning Kamogi now. Are we a little bit too hard on them? Do we not believe in them enough in a way, do you think? I think it it comes it comes with a slight little bit of arrogance and ego that it's ours, as you said at the beginning, like that it's our sport. And we almost don't want them to be good at it or better than us. But I don't think we're doing them a disservice. It's just something that isn't, hasn't been part of their upbringing. But it's not something that they can't learn. Yeah. It's just a lot more difficult to, for them to learn how to play hurling and camogie than it is to, for them to be able to play football or handball. How are Gaelic games funded in Uganda? Because in Sweden and in the Middle East and obviously in Ireland, in the UK, in America, there are companies who are working there. They're more than happy to put their money behind it. Uh, you know, I was at a tournament there a couple of weeks ago in Yavla, two hours north of Stockholm, and a huge amount of money was paid by sponsors to host that. Um, you're not in a country where the sport has a huge profile. So how are these things funded? Uh, how do you get money for slitters and helmets? Because I've seen everybody has the kit when I look at the videos on Instagram, you know? Um, Irish people, Irish people being, being very, very generous, whether it be Irish people traveling to Uganda, whether it be families of people who work in Uganda, people who were, who've been in Uganda and just came across the fact that there's hurling and football being played there. 
um, the Irish community and the Irish society itself, the Irish the Irish embassy, the Irish ambassador is a huge advocate of Gaelic gamers in Uganda. So it's really it's really sport being run by Ugandans, but being supported by the Irish and the Irish community around the world. Who are the Irish in Uganda? How many Irish people will be living there? Are they like yourself? Are they working in education or is there is there other stuff that they're doing there? Are they in construction? Are they in tech? That kind oh, of sure. The same, same as anything. You find an Irish man doing absolutely that. It's like the, one of the main supporters in Entebbe is the owner of Paddy Ogandas, which is the Irish bar. Um, we have... A couple of travel agents who are Irish who used to work with bigger airlines who set up in Uganda. There's a couple of the managing directors of hotels that are Irish that support. Um, so in general, it's 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 Irish people who who understand the importance of the GAA in in society or in a community. And if they're not living in Ireland, what better way of doing it of helping people who are less fortunate have the opportunity and to benefit from what Irish people do benefit from Gaelic games in the community and what it gives to Irish people. Like if it gives you a sense of belonging, it gives you a sense that you're part of a team, but it also gives you the opportunity to improve yourself because, you know, it's not a team isn't just 15 people, it's 15 individuals working together. So it's one of those things that Irish people, when they go abroad, it's very, very important for them, even though they might not be directly linked to it or directly involved, but that they are part of it, that they that they can take everything that's Irish within them and also support Ugandans who are actually epitomizing what it is to be Irish. Um, if you look at the countries around Uganda in East Africa now, what's the potential? Because uh, where you are in the Middle East, I know there's these tournaments that take place in Dubai and Abu Dhabi and in Oman. Yeah. Everybody gets together, very well funded. The Asian Games is one of the biggest tournaments in the world, right? Forget anything that happens in Ireland. Teams come from yeah. all over there. In Europe, we get together in places like Mastix and, and Dresden and we get together and we hurl. What are the possibilities there in Africa? Because we are dealing with a situation where maybe the members of your, of your clubs there wouldn't have the money to fly and stay in a hotel and play a one-day blitz and that kind of thing. Is there a potential there for a domestic league in Uganda or for a local continental league there that might that be part of the future? Well, there definitely is. Like, there's huge growth and there is, you know, there are other, you know, sporting organisations that have seen what you know, Uganda GA and um, now Equator Gales, what they've been able to do in such a short period of time, they're looking at how can they work with, you know, the coaches within the, the hurling club and within within football, how can they, you know, not replicate it, but how can they do these things without, and then for, for us as Irish people, it's, it's, it's important that the sport remains and or keeps its value as a sport, that it doesn't just become you know, a way of, like you said earlier, that it's not, it's not supposed to be a charity. It's not a charitable thing. Mm. Like it's not, you know, like you said, a kid on the front of a, on the front of a troker box. Like it's not a large organization which has people to be paid and this and that. You know, the coaches are the are coaches within the, uh, within the school. So they're working as teachers. Yes, you know it. The, the clubs do try and give them something for their transport or for their for their phones or whatever, just to, to allow them or not to be taking away from their own personal earnings for what they do. 
But at the same time, it's so important that it grows organically rather than it just being, oh, let's open another one. Oh, let's open another one. Then all of a sudden, you know, Daniel Reed's attached to 65 clubs around the world. And all of a sudden, I'm running for president of the GAA. So, Very like, cool <laughs> thanks. <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's supposed to be something that happens over time because it's supposed to happen, not because we want it to happen. Yeah. I always said that this idea of the single point of failure, right? I was chairman of our club here and we set it up for about 10 or 12 years and I shouldn't have been because it, like, it's not, this is not me. It's not my club. It's not about me. You know, it has to be about the club and the sport and what they create in the community. And the same thing for yourself, both in the Middle East and in Africa. And um, what have you found the, uh, the attitude of Croke Park to be, right? Because if we go back to maybe 2008, 2009, when I was getting involved in the GAA abroad, I always found the GEA to sort of look at us, you know, at that time, you know, pretty much as something they scraped off their shoe. It's gotten better now. You have the World Games that took place in Derry there recently. It's a, it's a much bigger, much better organised thing. How do you find, do they treat you well? Do they treat you as equals? Do they treat you as an irritant? How do you find Crow Park when you contact them, Dan, looking for help? Well, to be fair, um, in the last couple of weeks, we've been in communication with, with HQ, with the GEA itself. And we're getting there. It just takes time because, you know, there's, it's not, it's not in Ireland. That's the first thing. Second, you have to look at the bureaucracy of setting up firstly a CBO, which is a community based organization. Um, then creating a hurling club within the GAA and then to be recognized internationally as being a GAA licensed and, uh, supported organization outside of Ireland. So it's not a, it's not a click your fingers kind of job, but, to be fair, with our, with the interactions I've had so far, it's been very, very positive. Um, in terms of, of the future and that kind of thing, because as you mentioned, uh, organic growth there being the big thing, you mentioned Uganda uh, GEA as being the sort of the community-based organization that is sort of structuring this. Sometimes we kind of have to say, right, we have to be a little bit harsh and say, well, you do, you need to have a club. You have to register your players. You have to have qualified referees and that kind of thing. How are you, how is the region approaching that? Do you know, is there plans in place to educate referees, to put on coaching seminars for the Ugandans who are teaching the game now? Or because I mean, YouTube is absolutely brilliant, but sometimes it can help to have a TJ Reid or somebody come down and explain some of the, the concepts to you, you know? No, but that's the thing. So just going back, just because I just don't want people to get confused with like the club and Uganda GA thing. So the Uganda, Uganda GA was the first founded U, uh, hurling club in Uganda. Mm. And it's, it's sometimes when people are called, it's, it's, it's like GA in Uganda and Uganda GA. Uganda GA is a club like ours. It's, in and, fairness, it's very cheeky of them to take the name of a whole country and name the club after that. But we let that go. <laughs> no, no, but but it's a, it, it comes up in conversation a lot, an awful lot easier than anything else. Yeah. So what I would say with the growth, the idea is that over the next six months that we would start putting the coaches on coaching courses because there are coaching courses, coaching courses that are available online. But then over the next while, we're we're we're, we're seeing that there's more and more intercounty players and that that are gravitating towards getting involved and becoming ambassadors to, to our clubs. and Because, this, let's be honest, it, it's good for their profile as well as it's good for our profile. If they get involved with a, you know, outreach initiative in Uganda, coaching, hurling, football, camogie, it's as good for them as it is for us. And 
to be honest, I'm more than willing to, for them to, you know, use, not use us, but to get that exposure and get that experience. Because if you're going to teach or to going to coach a group of players who've never played the game before, it's, it's going to be an awful lot easier when you go back home to coach people. It's the same as me as a teacher. When I was working in Uganda as a teacher, it was very difficult because I had 120 children in one classroom. Whereas now I have a classroom of 28 to 30. So sometimes the best experience you get is a difficult experience because then it makes what you're doing in your day-to-day life make more sense and give it more purpose because you understand the difficulties that can be be put in front of you as a coach, as a teacher, as a mentor in general. So I do think, over as you said, um, the GAA will grow in East Africa. So you have you have the group uh, from Ireland, the GA players who who travelled to Kenya last year and they're travelling again this year. Uh, last year they planted over a million trees, and they they'll play an exhibition game in in uh, in Kenya. So obviously, what will happen is there will be you know some Ugand or some Kenyan man or woman who will say, why don't we do this more here? Why don't we set up more clubs here? And then if you have more clubs in Kenya and you have the growth that is it being experienced in Uganda right now. Eventually it'll come to a point where, you know, we'll get sponsorship and we'll bring a, we'll, we'll almost count, call it a county team where we'll pick, you know, the best players in Uganda to play the best players from Kenya. And in, in a, 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 we'll say if we had a, we'll call it an East African County board where you'd have a team, a, a full team, like they do with the World Games, where you pick the best players from the Middle East, the best players from Australasia, best players from America, and they play against each other. That's something I could see in the future, is with the creation of a Middle Eastern, uh, a East African county board, and then having clubs or county teams, which would be, you know, the, the Ugandan cranes versus the, 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 the Kenyan elephants or whatever. Mm. That That's something that I could see happening in the not too distant future. Yeah, we're already at a stage with European GEA or Gaelic Games Europe, as it's known, where the team that wins the European Championship goes into the Leinster Junior Football and Leinster Junior Hurling Championships, as far as I know, you know. And now it hasn't been easy because we don't play 11 aside, or sorry, we don't play 15 aside. We play 11 in football and sometimes 9 to 11 in, in hurling and camogie and that, you know, so it can be difficult. One of the things I thought about, Dan, right, and this is from the Instagram videos and, and the YouTube videos that I was watching, the pitches wouldn't be great, right? So access to facilities can be very difficult. Maastricht is the only full-size, 15-a-side pitch in Europe. Is it, are there soccer pitches that you could be playing on that you just can't get access to? Or is it just very difficult in general to find sporting facilities? Because there wouldn't be much ground hurling in Kampala now from what I've seen, you know? Well, no, it wouldn't. No, ground hurling is non-existent. Keep it in the hand. Keep it off the floor. <laughs> but in general... I would say when it comes to facilities, I would say watch this space uh, without saying too much. But um, yeah, I would say that the surfaces could be better. Um, access is difficult, but it is our primary focus at the moment is getting a facility that would allow us to have better surfaces for the for the children to play on. Because as well as that, some of them are, are not even wearing boots. So, you know, uh, having a decent surface is priority to make sure that there's no injuries. Getting more football boots out, you know, to to protect the the children. And even when, as you were saying earlier, with with regards to coaching, 
you know, vetting the coaches, making sure that every it's basically what we're we're, just, we're trying to do things the way they should be. Like the coaches should be vetted. They should be they should be trained. They should have you know some form of so or some level of, of coaching experience or coaching qualifications. The idea is trying to trying to with the support of the Ugandan community as well as those who have created and set up these clubs is getting everything run like it should be so that it is a an authentic thing outside of Ireland, that it is going to be respected and looked at positively from outside of uh, Uganda. That people see that the impact that it has, the, the fact that some of the children now are being sponsored because they're hurling. So they have the opportunity to go to school. Uh, in the Hands for Hope in, in Kampala, where the children come out of the out of the townships, like all those to all those children are being sponsored by people outside of Uganda so that they can go to school and now they're playing hurling they're they're competing in the fesh today in Uganda where you know there's going to be up to 80 students Irish dancing for you know a fesh title so an Irish dancing title so like if you take hurling football camogie handball Irish dancing but we're, it, the important thing is as well, it's not just Irish dancing, it's Irish fusion dancing, which is a mix with the cultural dance that is so, so important to the cultural upbringing of, of Ugandans. So it's not like, you know, somebody said to me does, the other day, what you're doing, do you feel like it's a little bit imperialist? I'm like, no, it's empowerist. It's, it's not supposed to be us forcing our games on them. They're the ones who come up with the idea of creating hurling and football clubs and they're the ones running it and those they're the ones who are training. All we're doing is standing on the sidelines, you know, shouting in like Irish mammies on a Saturday morning, you know? So that's that's the that's the important thing, you know? Yeah. I think if you look in, in the Brittany region of France and in parts of Spain as well, that they have, you know, their own French speaking referees, they have their own competitions, they run themselves, they pay very little attention to anything that happens at Crow Park and they just get on with it. One final question for you, Dan, and thank you so much for taking the time. It's been fascinating to talk to you. What do the Ugandans coaching hurling and playing hurling and camogie and Gaelic football, how do they see Irish people? How do they see these games? Because for us, it means one thing. For you as a Kid Kenny man taking a hurl in your hand, it means one thing. For me as a, as a Dublin man, when somebody hands me a hurl or a football, it means something completely different. What does it mean to them? What does Irish culture and Irishness mean to them? To be honest, when it comes to Irish, and this is something you alluded to earlier, the Irish in the past would have been your missionaries. So it would have been the Mill Hill Fathers, it would have been the Irish congregations of nuns, uh, little, uh, little Sisters of St. Francis. They would have been core. So Ugandans know Irish people from the development that they did at the turn of the 20th century, from around 1880 up to 1960. So that would have been their their understanding of Irish people, you know, the saints and the scholar, that kind of thing. So they understand that within Irish people, there is this develop, developmental uh, idea that if we have, why don't we give? So they, this is what they understand. They understand Irish people from the perspective of what the priests and the nuns did for development there. So they understand where we're coming from when we're involved. So obviously there is a certain amount of how can you help us? How can you help us? Help us, help us, help us. 
But what we found is because they've created it themselves, they see us as being supporters of it. Like everything that they do is supported by us and anything that we do is supported by them. So it's, it's, it's everything that we do for now is running parallel. Like we haven't had any conflict. We haven't had any issues, you know, with, with Ugandans and Ugandans involved and everything is, is developmental. Like the event today uh, that has been run by um, the Irish dancing schools, like that's going to bring Ugandans together. It's going to bring the Irish community together. It's going to bring together people from outside the Irish community who are just interested in the Irishness. Because obviously it's something you're, you're in Sweden, you know, the Irish pub is the centre of activities in so many cities around the world. You know, there's an Irish pub on Mount Everest. So like it's one of those things where Irishness is is something to be part of. It's not just ours. You can be, you can associate yourself with being involved in Irish sport, Irish culture without being Irish. So that's what I think it's so important. And that's what Ugandans have really, really kind of integrated into their lives is that to, to being being from Ireland is one thing, but being Irish is something completely different. It's a, it's a mindset, not a, a passport or a, a a degree or, 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 you know, a hurling club. It's, it's more than just that. Being Irish, being Ugandan, being Omani is, is beyond where you're from. And my very final question to you, if I do come down to Uganda with me camogues and me hurlers, can I expect to see you pulling on a helmet there? Will I see you between the sticks or somewhere in the midfield there at any time in the near future, Dan? I would say yes. And you know what? Just, 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 yeah. But, put a hurley in my hand after 15 years and I'll tell you I talked about it being being a, a weapon earlier and that would be seen <laughs> well it never leaves you you know once you learn these things they never leave you really though do they nah not it's like riding a bicycle if you if you poke a ball across the field at me I'll take it down on the hurley like it was 1995 <laughs> No bother to you. Well, listen, I hope I get that opportunity and I hope that I do get it on a field somewhere in Uganda. Dan, thanks so much for talking to me. No bother at all. There you go, lads. What a fascinating story of hurling from East Africa. And I was leaving that conversation thinking, Jesus, I'd love to do all I can to help these young people and to help uh, spread the word about what they're doing at EcuadorGales.gaa on Instagram. Lads, go give them a follow. If you do nothing else, the minute you listen to this episode, go give them a follow on Instagram. Uh, let them know that you're thinking of them let them know that you support them like their posts and that kind of thing because it's just brilliant work that they're doing and it's great to see people uh, taking to the games and bringing them on and developing them and making something new and something brilliant and something wholesome out of them I was actually I really wanted to find that uh, famous quote uh, by Micheál Amurahertig where he spoke about Sean Ogo Halpin and said his father's from Fermanagh his mother's from Fiji neither are hurling stronghold and I just couldn't find it because I thought it would have been very fitting to put in there but I think it's um it's also very important that we take these initiatives seriously because, you know, I've been thinking for a long time about the Gaelic Games in the Scandinavian region and how we need to get Swedes and Norwegians and Finns and Danes, Finns don't consider themselves Scandinavians, they consider themselves Nordic, but anyway, and get them involved. And then you look at, you know, there's some clubs in New York where there's an awful lot of native-born players playing, people who didn't grow up with the games, I know one of the Danish clubs, there's uh, a few players who didn't grow up playing Gaelic football or hurling or that, you know, and they're the people, you know, if we want to turn our games into the likes of, you know, basketball or soccer 
corner or that kind of thing and it can be done but we just have to cede a little bit of control much as they've done there in Uganda to get people to sort of develop the games as they go along next week lads and ladies if you're interested in mental health if you're interested in improving your life if you're interested in, in anxiety i will be talking to dave rooney dave is a brilliant musician an award winner has won emmys for films that he's made and songwriter of the year 20 all these kind of things great character altogether. Uh, so i'll be talking to him about his new book about living with anxiety uh, the new movie that he's making He's already made one uh, documentary that's won an Emmy and they're currently making another himself and Dave Brown from Cuff Street, a lifelong friend of mine. Uh, the two boys are very entertaining. But this week it's Mr. Rooney alone who is going to be, or sorry, next week it's Mr. Rooney alone who's going to be on the podcast. So look forward to that. He uh, makes his living over in Las Vegas as a musician and touring America. Holds a Guinness record, a Guinness World Record for touring America, the 50 states of America, faster than any other musicians around. Uh, that's the, the stolen subject of the first documentary that they made. But anyway, Dave will be with us next week and We'll be sharing the title of the book and the cover and that kind of thing. But um, as I say, follow the Uganda Gales or the, sorry, the Equator uh, Gales GAA, and you'll find that Uganda GAA is all over Instagram at the moment. It's the happening thing, lads. You'll find it on your trending page on TikTok as well, I'm sure. In the meantime, I shall leave you at that. Leave you with that. Please do share the podcast. As I say, now you've heard the story, lads. There's no excuse for not ex- uh, for not sharing it with people you know who like the Gaelic football and the hurling and the Irish abroad and the seventy million of us that exist around the world. I will leave you with that for now. Take care of you as ourselves. Take care of one another. Uganda GAA and Equator Gales Abu, and I'll talk to you again next week. Good luck. Mm-hmm.